Good morning. I'm going to keep saying good morning. There we go. Got the sound on. George Alden, it was great to see you baptized. I don't know where you are. You're probably glad I don't know where you are right now, but uh, that was so encouraging to me. Um, I hope you remember your baptism always, but I also want to let you know that God will always remember your baptism and he will be faithful to it. So I'm glad for your faith, young man. Um, Before we read this long passage, and it is the right passage today, thanks to the Cracker Jack team here at at All Saints and the fact that I actually read the email thread. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercies. We ask you to teach us who you are, what you have done, and how we should live. In Jesus' name, amen. Thought you're coming to take over, Susie. <laughs> she, she, she could probably do it. So the, uh, now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David in to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Elah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war, to go down to Keilah, to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. And David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men to the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him to his hand. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I will be next to you. Saul my father knows, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went out to Saul at Gibeah, saying, 
Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds of Horesh on the hill of Hakalah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make it more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is and who has seen him there. For it is told of me that he is very cunning. See therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in Arabah, south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him, and David was told. So he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And Saul heard that he pursu- and when Saul heard that, he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men went on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul, and Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. A messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines. Therefore the place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. Amen. There's so much going on in that story. There's so much of the art of Hebrew narrative. We will get to a little bit of it. But first, um, I, I want to tell a story about an offshore oil rig that was making its way up to Puget Sound, I don't know, five or ten years ago. And a bunch of kayakers wanted to create a blockade. So maybe, I don't know, there are hundreds, could have been a thousand kayakers paddled out there and, and made a blockade and circled the oil rig. And um, it was pointed out that almost every single one of them was made of polyethylene resins. <laughs> and so, you know, Snarky Mike had a great day that day. It was, it was a day I'll always remember because I just love that kind of stuff. Because, but the reason that I'm telling you that story is that it illustrates something about living in the world, not as a kayaker, but as a Christian. It's difficult to betray the world. We're so entangled in it and so wrapped up in it it's complicated and challenging to know when we betray. But, but the fact is, we will and we must. The life of faith calls us to betray the world for the exalted king. There's no way through this world and your life without betraying someone. So we're going to look at these two kings and then we're going to look at three betrayals and learn maybe how to be a faithful betrayer ourselves. So let's look at these at these contrasting kings. Uh, the story opens up with David hearing from someone that Keilah is under siege by the Philistines. Um, David will hear a similar story too, um, but 
in verses 1 through 6, this is what we find. David is told something. David inquires of the Lord. Then, significantly, David shepherds his men who, aren't, who like weren't there when he talked to God. So they said, well, we're, we're not so sure. So out of accommodation to their fear, he repeats his inquiry. And then David saves Keilah. Well, Saul has a very different response when he finds out where David is. Saul's told, that's going to be important because they keep getting words throughout this passage. Then he presumes that God has given him into his hand. Then he summons all of Israel. And then he goes to attack Israel, not save it. So we have these, these overlapping, competing kingdoms. David's kingdom is selfless. His kingdom is dependent on God. It's pastoral. One of the most remarkable moments of any kind of leadership, certainly um, covenantal spiritual Christian leadership, is when David, instead of saying, hey, I just told you that God told me to go. Instead of that, when his, when his men like, hold on, David, he goes, he says, all right, I'll go ask again. He shepherds them, and, and it's redemptive. He, he saves and redeems Israel. That's the language that's used sometimes for a battle like this, but also for their full redemption. Saul is uh, self-serving. We, we expect that from Saul now. He's presumptive. We, ex- we expect that. He's, he's all muscle. He just summons people that um, he's conscript, uh, conscripting Israelites. That has a modern analogy, even in our day. And he's going to destroy. He's already, in the preceding passage, just killed the priests of Nob for a much smaller provocation than this. Than a city um, protecting and holding David. So th- those, are the, those are the two kings. And I- I'm reminded of Augustine, city of God, uh, African bishop, father of the church. He wrote... Um, a book about this exact kind of thing. The two cities were created, that is the city of man and the city of God, by two kinds of love. The earthly city was created by self-love, reaching to the point of contempt for God. The heavenly city, by the love of God, carried as far as contempt of self. You've got to betray someone. You're not going to make it through this week without the need to betray Something, someone, some value. As long as you understand that ultimately faith betrays its own lesser instincts, our body, our soul's own lesser instincts. Now you're ready. That's the platform from which you can make the choices. We're, we're surrounded by conflict and choices like we haven't been in my lifetime and I'm old. We, we, we can choose nationalism or globalism, capitalism or socialism, Racial supremacy or racial diversity. We can be spiritual or secular, conservative or liberal. Um, we can do all these things. We're being forced to talk about all these things. I, I personally, I love to talk about this stuff. But, uh, but it's also inherently a trap. But here's what I want us to understand. Um, you have a bigger concern. You, you could choose either one of these two sides of those um, antitheses that I've mentioned and still be loving the world and not betraying it at all. 
You have a greater king, a transcendent king, a glorious king. Your your job is not simply to get the uh, nationalism versus globalism discussion right. Your, Your job and my job is to betray the whole idea for what we might call the kingdom of God. And and to choose something greater. Then you can go and have all the arguments you want uh, about secular states and spiritual churches and everything else. But understand that those all fall into one, uh, under one bigger choice about where your allegiance will truly be. Who are you going to betray? It might help if you understand the three kinds of betrayal in this passage. The first is the betrayal of the timid. The, the poor folks in Keilah are just having a rough time. They're a fortified city. Um, you know, this isn't like Edinburgh Castle, uh, which, by the way, was also um, <laughs> invaded a number of times, but it was pretty sturdy. But still, relative to the world around it, it, it had a guard and a fence, and I mean, and, and a wall, and a gate, as, as Saul says. But they were getting beat up by the Philistines. They were um, out in the threshing floor stealing their produce and crops. And they were uh, probably nearly under siege. And so these poor folks cried out for help like people do, like, like I did when I, when I dug myself into terrible ditches as a young man in college and found great despair and was overwhelmed. All of a sudden, I wanted help from Jesus. And Jesus came and helped me. So David, the the father on earth of Jesus, he comes and um, and he helps them. But but once uh, he comes to them, once he uh, is in their city, even after he saved them, well, his presence creates a different threat. Now the Savior puts them in harm's way. So when I reached out to when I reached out to Jesus as a despairing, uh, frankly pathetic college student frat punk and he he reached deeply into my heart. Well, then all of a sudden I was surrounded by all these frat bros that I used to be stupid with. And I realized It wasn't as simple as I thought. Truth be told, I got stupid a few more times after that when I would stumble. But now they've got this rebel, maybe, king, maybe, problem, certainly, right in the middle of their city, and they're afraid. They're, they're, They're timid. It's not simply unfaithfulness that makes us um, blink or retreat in faith. We're scared people. You're scared maybe at work. You're scared uh, maybe at a kitchen table if your family, like my family, doesn't all come from one spiritual or philosophical or political perspective. You might be afraid of, your, of standing up in faith to your own children. And so you, you wonder, maybe you, maybe 
maybe this king you have right here in your life, uh, in this moment, uh, well, well maybe, he, maybe he's more trouble than he's worth. But, but the thing is, you also know, don't you, that, that he'll come save you again anyway, because that's what Jesus does. You know, Benedict Arnold is an interesting character. Um, he was upset. He, he was quite a hero at Saratoga. You should read about it. He was pretty tough, pretty brilliant, pretty brave. And then he kept getting passed over uh, for promotions, and he became pretty bitter. So he went over to, uh, to the English and became, uh, well, he became the Benedict Arnold that we know now. Now, what, I, what you should know is he, he went back, he got asylum in Britain, and uh, had a miserable life there because everyone decided that he, he was just not loyal. You know, it's hard to know what to do in the world that you're really in. So you, more than anything else, need to find out who your king is. Benedict Arnold found out that, that betraying one side for another doesn't simplify your life. It complicates it. You'll always be known as someone who chose. You'll always be known as someone who betrayed. You and I can't live here in this place without making that choice. And if we think we can, what's really happening is we're, we're making probably a timid choice all along. We're, we're, being, we're being hesitant and silent when we should be uh, open and humble, but still open. So maybe you're a timid betrayer, or maybe you're the opportunist betrayer, which, um, of course, as you might anticipate, are these terrible Ziphite guys. They got, they're, they're not under threat. They're not in this town. They're not trapped with the king. They're just out in the hills of Ziph doing whatever they do out there. And they see an opportunity um, to score some points with Saul. Their whole um, betrayal is about their own stark advantage. They volunteer their treachery. And they just give them up. Now, now what I want us to understand to drive this thing home about the fact that we've got to betray to live here. Is that, is that David now has nowhere to go. Ziph and Keilah, guess what? They're both in Judah. David can't even get love in his own tribe's land. No matter what he does, he just saves one of their cities. Gets nothing. You know, we saw in the last passage that he ran over to the Philistines and uh, then he, he had to act like he was crazy over there. He can't go back to uh, the court of Saul. This is part of um, betraying. The, the right kind of betrayal realizes that you'll never be home here. You can never choose between all those debates that I went over a minute ago as if you get to land on one that makes you at home here in America or in France, if that's where we were. There's no place to go. But before we... Um, before we just uh, dismiss the Ziphites as the kind of losers that they kind of really are we, in the narrative, but, but let's be sympathetic to them because 
they're in a non-narrated situation. What do you think I mean by that? Like, they're not reading Samuel. They don't really know what happened to David and his anointing. Did that really happen? Was that fake news? Is he the king? Well, Saul still looks like the king to me. His army's certainly bigger. David is one of those, uh, one of those servants who, who decides to usurp his position and take over. David and his followers are not safe anywhere. It's hard to know what to do. So um, I, have, I enjoy history and um, you know, I'm, not, I'm not a historian or the son of a historian, but I enjoy reading about it. And, and I've wondered, I've wondered over and over again why America was so slow to get involved in World War II. Like, why the invasion, uh, the, the, the co-opting, really, an invasion of, of Czechoslovakia didn't trigger uh, America's might? And then Poland didn't do that. And I, and I thought, look, what was happening? It seemed like we were just absent. And, and then in the last three weeks, Russia invades Ukraine, and I don't know what to do. Except I'm not so hard as I used to be on all the politicians in 1939. They're glad to know that, I'm sure. But it's really, it's really although I'm, I, I was flippant about it, it's not flippant. These are real world choices that are really difficult. That cost people lives. And I'm, I'm pointing them out so that we might understand the complexity of our own circumstances. One of the legacies of American evangelicalism is that we, we believe, we, well, we, we can if we're not careful, and we often do, that we have sort of a, a preemptive, proprietary relationship with American culture and history and its constitution. As if our job is to, is to preserve and protect this place. And I would say there's plenty to be thankful for, much to advocate for and, and resist. But that's not the kind of betrayal that, that we're called to. Your, your job isn't to preserve America. Your job is to follow the king of kings. Sometimes that might coincide with our country's agenda and needs, and sometimes it might conflict with its perceived agenda and needs. But our job is to live the third kind of betrayal, and that's what I want to call the betrayal of the noble. And that's this blessed figure this Jonathan, whom we love, who, in one of the little sub-themes of this whole passage, uh, Jonathan can, can find David whenever he wants, but Saul can never find him. It, it's, it's clearly uh, a, a humorous sub-theme in Samuel's book. And so Saul's looking all over him, then all of a sudden Samuel's like, yo, David, what's up? And he's just right there. Because what we're learning is that those who are allied with the king can find the king. Those who will betray their own station 
and their own future and their own inheritance will always know where the king is. And so Jonathan leads us to this noble betrayal. And encourages the king. Do not fear, he says. I love these words. Do not fear. My father, my father won't find you. You know what that means, right? I'm not telling him where you are. I'm going to go back to him. He's my dad. I'm not telling him where you are. Do not fear, verse 17. For the hand of Saul, my father, will not find you. You shall be king of Israel. I shall be next to you. What, what that means is I will serve you, but being next to the king is, 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 does not make you an heir to the kingdom. He's saying, I am on you. David, or excuse me, Jonathan betrays the failing kingdom for the faithful king. That's what our betrayal is supposed to be. That means sometimes we will be uh, champions in his name of the things that are around us and the inheritance we have as a people. And sometimes we will be against it. Sometimes we will, we will um, call it out to righteousness. Because we, we know that wherever we live, if we lived in Guatemala, that that place in God's providence would be for us a place that we should want to thrive. But also Guatemala nor Idaho should be a place where we want to belong, where we have our primary allegiance. I have a theory that most of the kitchen table arguments about Trump and social justice and masks and everything else we've argued about. Um, and by the way, my family rationed me to one COVID rant a, a day, and they limited it to four minutes. Also, just as an aside, I tried once to do two minutes in the morning and then two minutes later, and they said, no, all or nothing. But what, what I want us to realize as a pastoral observation is if we're not careful, most of those arguments about all that stuff, and it's very important, all of it is important, but most of it are just, just sounds often like two siblings arguing over who gets the top bunk. Instead of someone who loves the king of kings, whose chief and ultimate allegiance is to make sure that his kingdom is established, his reign never ends, that you have betrayed nobly all your heritage and all your family and everything else you love in order to be his. Because you know, like Jonathan said he knew, you know that the whole world and its prince of darkness knows that David will be king and that David's son is king. As Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and his mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You, you've, you've got to be a faithful betrayer because you're going to be a betrayer of some kind. That's the situation that you're in. You will betray someone. There is no Switzerland in the world 
which by the way, that changed a little bit these last couple of weeks, but, but, you, but also, <laughs> you know, they made a lot of money being neutral over the last 150 years, but that's a different sermon. It's hard to be neutral. It's impossible to be neutral. So let's talk a little bit about, about choosing sides. Now, um, here's just a couple of observations, and, and then uh, I'll try to wrap us up. First of all, there still and always will be sides to choose. In a letter that a man named Paul wrote to a church in a city called Corinth, he said, in the case of, of, um, of those who don't follow Christ, in their case, the God of this world has blinded their minds the minds of unbelievers, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's quite a statement. Ephesians, another letter that the same guy wrote to a place called Ephesus, Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins of which you once walked and followed the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We've been transported into a different kingdom. We, we live in a convergence of time and space. We live in both places. We live in the not yet and the already in the future and in the past. We live um, in the throne room of, of heaven that we see in the book of the Revelation. We live at the foot of the cross that we see at the Gospels. We, we live here and we live there. We live on earth in America but we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses and we've already, we've already come, we're told, to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. We're, we're the fir- first fruits of this kingdom. Choose this kingdom and don't fear what you see. It's easy to see the kingdom that is. It's easy to see Saul. It's easy to see his bigger army. It's easy to see his, his court. It's easy to see um, his dominion. He's got all of the regalia of a king. It's easy to see that. But, but that king, that Saul, can never find David. That king, that Saul, w- will be in um, a cave. David will be right up close enough to take part of his garment and, and he cannot see him and does not notice him. You, if you have come to Christ, you have been given eyes to see. You've been given ears to hear. You don't live by sight. You live by faith. I, I, I would say that in this age of all of the disruption and turmoil and uncertainty and conflict, um, you should be with all the others here in this city who know and love Jesus, you should be the happiest and most hopeful in town. Because you know where the king is. You can find him at any moment because he's in you. But what, is, what do we do as we, uh, as we wait? Well, that's what we do. We wait. We wait for a deliverance. We wait for a division. We wait for a season when God, in his moment, makes it clear that he will deliver us. I want to run through some of this. Um, I'm going a little over, but um, 
you're not going to stop me, so I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> the, uh, I mean, even if you want to, that'd be awkward. But uh, in, listen to all these words, all these messages, and I want you to hear this at the end of this sermon. The way to betray nobly is to listen to the word and the message of God. In, chap- in, in verse 1 of our chapter, David is told. In verse 7, Saul is told. These are all these elements of Hebrew narrative that I was talking about. In verse 13, Saul was told that David escaped. In verse 19, the Ziphites went up to t- Saul and told him some more stuff. And then right in verse 25, David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And Saul was heard. He was told. The, the, the messengers of the providence of God, they, they converged together. And finally, in, in the same narrative moment, Saul and David are both told something. And then there's one last message. What we have to do to appreciate this scene is to understand that there is a, there, there is a mountain ridge, not, not huge, but, but um, large enough that it would take a journey around each side. And the language is not exactly clearly translated in the, in the ESV, but, but the word um, for closing in on is to encircle. And so it's pretty clear that Saul, who had a much larger contingent of soldiers than the 600 guys that David was with, sent one flank to the north or whichever direction it was and one flank to the opposite side and was pinching in on David. This will happen to you all the time in in a figurative way, in a manner of speaking. The world at work, you know, the the world of your neighborhood, the, the politics of your family, you know, the kingdom is going to encircle around you, but, but then this last word that is heard, Saul finally gets one last word, and what is it? The Philistines are attacking. This is how you know you're safe when you betray. Because when Saul is told the Philistines are attacking, and we read about that, What the reader is being told is that Saul is a failure. That Saul's kingdom is rotting. And why? Because the whole point of Saul was to beat the Philistines. Go back to chapter 9. That's why they asked for a king in 8 and 9. But Saul has lost his way and he is now with full force and all of his attention, driving after the true king. The kingdom that you're afraid of, the kingdom that you're timid will bring you down, or the kingdom that you think, if you play it rightly, like the Ziphites, can lift you up. That kingdom has broken faith. That kingdom is failing. And you and I, in the language of the rock of escape, also the rock of divisions, 
the language of, of the armies and tribes of God's people. Well, if you and I learn to betray in that noble way, we'll be safe even when the world is surrounding us. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercies and the beauty and the power of your word. We bless you, Lord. Help us to betray the world and ourselves by loving you. And learn also, Lord God, that to betray the world is to love the people in it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.